Welcome to the Frontline Conversations podcast, a platform that discusses issues around public policy and current affairs. We can't wait to share insights that matter to you. Are you ready to have the conversation? This is Frontline Conversations. Welcome to another episode of Frontline Conversations. Our guest today is Mr. Kes Kuvadia, the CEO of Business Unity South Africa. Mr. Kuvadia, welcome to Frontline Conversations. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, I think uh, let's start off with, with the state of the nation address um, from the president, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. Um, he made a, a a number of, of, of promises uh, that one can say has been made before. So how do you think this time uh, is, is, is going to be different, uh, the things that he promised? Well, look, firstly, just let me say, I think he was quite emphatic that we can't address the problems, the socioeconomic problems that we have in the country without investment and growth. And he mentioned that a couple of times. And he, he, he talked about the fact that people's lives and the economy are intricately linked. Okay. So I'm happy with that, that we've been, we've been pushing for a number of years, that we don't have too many choices here. We've got to create an environment for investment. And on the back of that, we've got to create and bring about inclusive growth in our country. Without that, we can't solve the unemployment problem, the inequality problem, the poverty problem. Uh, I think that he also indicated that while he is putting more money into creating public works program and so on, and government creating some jobs or job opportunities. He did again emphasize that jobs are created by the private sector. And the role of government is to actually create the environment for the private sector to do that. And so I think that was all positive. I think what we need from the president is a clear message that says that we are open for investment. We will do what is necessary to attract investment. And there should be no buts behind that sentence, okay? And he must pull his cabinet behind him. You can't have the president saying one thing and one of the ministers saying something totally different. So if you look at the energy environment, I mean, president is clear that we need to move towards renewable energy. And one of his ministers is clear that we need to protect coal. Now, if you have that sort of uncertainty, investors are not going to come and invest. So that's what we need. The other thing I think was positive, the president mentioned that in the next 100 days, he wants to work with social partners to build a social compact. We, at a meeting with him about two weeks ago, suggested that we work together and our view was that in the next 100 days between business and government, we barrel down into three or four critical issues and see if we can move the needle together. We will work with, if the president wants us uh, a multi-stakeholder sort of process for this, we'll work with that. But we absolutely clear that a social compact is not going to solve the problems. 
a social compact can work on the basis of government taking decisions and giving the direction. And once government has done that, we can come together to actually work together to make those things happen. But government has got to give the direction. You can't, in a social compact, put to the social compact, what sort of an economic model do we have? We'll never reach agreement. And the idea is not to reach consensus. The idea is for government to consult and then to take decisions. And then we work together to implement those decisions. So that's how we would want to see this process. And that's my view on the sauna. Um, on, on the issue of, of social compact, uh, I think my, my issue with, 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 with government has been that whilst government is quick to say that we need business because business is the one that creates jobs, but it seems like business is lastly excluded from the policymaking process in South Africa where you need business as the ones that will be operating in a certain environment to come in and say, for us to thrive, for us to create jobs, this is what we need in terms of policies and regulations. But we, 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 we seem to have a situation where government on the other hand says, yes, we do agree that we need business to, to grow our economy and create jobs. But when it comes to policymaking side, government seems to go at it alone. From, from that side, how do you think it will improve uh, seeing what the president has said about social compacting, for instance? And, and, and perhaps uh, just before you come in, I mean, the, the 100 day um, timeline is quite interesting to say um, there's a need to finalize the, uh, the social compact. Um, business, government, and other social partners have been talking for quite some time. In fact, uh, even the economic uh, reconstruction and recovery plan that was unveiled in 2020 October, the president did say that it was an outcome of uh, extensive consultations with social partners. Now, the question is, what is going to be done within the next 100 days that could not be done over the past two years? Yeah, yeah, no, so I, th I think those questions go to the heart of the situation. And it's what I said just now, you know, we we seem to have this habit in South Africa of just kicking the can down the road uh, and just continuing to talk about the social compact. In our view, kicks the can down the road in the sense that it's again detracting from the need for government to show leadership. Okay, so. Whenever we meet the president, we agree on the issues very quickly. And, and he raised the issue yesterday, last night. But the president cannot pass on the responsibilities of governing and government taking decisions to some sort of a social compact. Okay, can't work. Because, because one, it's not correct. We've elected a government. We expect the government to give leadership. After consulting, they must consult with us, they must consult with labor and whoever else. But then they must say, we've heard you, but in our view, in the national interest, this is the direction we go. And, and these are the policies we're putting into place to enable us to go there. We might not as business like every part of that. 
that's fine. We can work with that. At least it creates certainty and it shows that we've got a government that's decisive and that's leading. Once that happens, then we can say, okay, let's bring the various parties together. Government has taken the decision. Now, how can we work together in some sort of a social compact to actually work together to implement this, bring all the optimal resources we have in the country, not only resources sitting in government or in business or in labor, bring those together to one aim, to one focus. And that focus has been set by government. Okay, and, and, and that's the direct, that's the process we would like to see and the direction we would like to see. It's no good. I mean, what do we do in the next 100 years? I mean, 100 days to put together a social compact. What we should be doing in the next 100 days is government having consulted, saying, right, these are the four critical issues. This is the direction we're going in. These are the policies that we will put into place. And in 100 days, we want to bring the social partners together to talk about how we together going to implement all of this. That should be the aim. But if the aim is simply to use the next 100 days to develop a social compact, and then in, in 100 days, sit down and say, okay, now what do we do with the economy? Doesn't work, okay? So we would want to see that sort of a process. So thanks, uh, thank, thanks a lot for, for, for that um, uh, very comprehensive response. I mean, uh, as I was saying that we were all wondering what, what the next other days would, 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 would have to look like. Um, there is also the issue, I mean, you, you are touching on it, uh, that uh, the president needs to have the, the entire cabinet or the government machinery behind him. And um, there has been a lot of talk about South Africa exhibiting some signs of uh, a failing uh, state, as it were. And uh, people are pointing to a whole lot of issues, the government not talking uh, uh, in the, in, 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 in from, from the same hymn book, as it were. So what do you make of South Africa as a state and the, the particularly the state's ability to um take the necessary decisions and uh, to be able to lay down the framework for business to be able to um do what 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 is supposed to do in terms of job creation etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah so so look the president himself has on numerous occasions talked about the weaknesses in government okay capacity issues and so on the what we've seen during the course of last year, and in fact coming into this year, the, the July issues, uh, everything that Zondo has talked about, the burning of parliament, uh, uh, the burning of St. George's Cathedral, uh, there seems to be a low level insurrection in our country. Uh, and all of that emanates with the greatest of respect from the problems in the ruling party, in the majority party. Okay. So, and then if you look at the, the expert panel report on July, absolutely clear 
that the state had serious shortcoming in intelligence, in law and order, in coordinating between those two. So I think, you know, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to actually make the, come to the conclusion that we have a state that seems to be unable to deal with the law and order issues, seems to be unable to deal with economic growth issues, with the social problems we have. And a lot of that, I think, is because the president appears to be disabled because of the problems in his party. And, and I think that what is needed is, and, and I'm not saying it's easy. I know there's a lot of politics in this and so on, but thank God I'm not sitting where he's sitting. Right? <laughs> uh, I think what we need from him, and, and we believe in, we believe in Saru Ramaphosa as the president. And, and if you look at the last national elections a few years ago, close on to 300,000 or 350,000 people who voted for the ANC in the national election did not vote for the ANC in provincial elections. And that was a vote for Sir. Right? And I think he needs to step in front of his party and say he is the president of this country and this is what needs to be done. Uh, and I think he'll get a broad cross-section of the society behind him. Uh, so, so we need that sort of leadership. You know, it's, a, it's, not, it's an unenviable position for him to be in, but that's the position he's in. So I, I think that if he doesn't show that sort of leadership, pull together people behind him, and if, if there are cabinet ministers who are clearly uh, uh, opposing him on that. And we've seen that recently, right? With Lindy Vesisu. The cabinet is his executive. It's his prerogative to appoint people there and to, to take people out. He must take those hard decisions. Right? Now, as I said, I, it's an unenviable position to be in, but, but it's the place where the country finds itself in. And he's got to put national interest before his party's interest. And, 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 and if he does that, I think we will all, across society, put our shoulders to the wheel and say, we have a leader who's decisive. This is our country. We ain't going nowhere. We, we pay traffic to this country. This is our country. We have a leader who stepped in front. We need to support him. And I think it will begin to build trust. It will begin to build confidence. And I think that's what we need. Easy for me Kovedia, to say. But. Yeah, of course. And, and Mr. Kovadia, when you speak of the, the lack of indecisiveness by, by the president, uh, don't you think by him creating this super presidency where instead of reigning in the, the relative ministers to say, you are not performing in your portfolio, therefore I'm going to take you out. He's playing maybe politics and politics by keeping certain ministers who are not performing. Instead, he finds a way around it by creating trust teams, committees in his presidency in order to get things moving instead of uh, reining in those uh, ministers. 
He spoke about uh, performance agreement. We have not seen those. We don't know what are the targets. And we, so we cannot therefore appraise them, but it's, it's, it's up to him as the president to say, this is what I want from you. Instead of creating another unit or test team within my presidency, you must do this by this or else you're out. So instead it seems like he's, uh, he's playing politics on, on, on that front. So when it comes to that, do you think that he, he's likely to, to be decisive uh, anytime soon? Um, <laughs> yeah. Perhaps maybe when he gets a, a second term where he thinks like that maybe uh, whatever happens, I'm not coming back. Therefore, I might, I'll start being more decisive. But, but also, if, if I could just come in before you answer, Mr. 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 Kuvadia, is, uh, I mean, on the face of it, it does come across as if the president does not have confidence in his own ministers, right? Um, Calvin uh, is talking about those uh, committees and structures in the presidency. Um, I mean, clearly all of those uh, issues that have got to be attended to by those uh, structures could be attended to at departmental level. For instance, issue of red tape, uh, it could be addressed by the DTIC, uh, small business development, et cetera, et cetera. Why create a structure in the president? Maybe he doesn't have confidence. I don't know yeah, what you're you, you guys are asking tough questions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, I, I, look, I, I can't disagree with you. I, I, I think, I mean, he's appointed Sipo and Kosi to head up a task team to deal with red tapes. Uh, Sipo's great, and, and I'm, I'm thrilled. I, I sent him a message last night saying, anything we can do to help, please shout. Uh, but, but you're absolutely right. The thing is that Sipo can do a great job with a task team behind him, and he can say, these are the things that need to be done to cut red tape, to make it easier to do business in the country and so on. But at the end of the day, the two ministries you mentioned, at the very least, those two ministries need to implement that and need to put the policies into place for that. Right? And if they don't do that, then what do, what do you do? So why go through this when the president should tell them, I have said that red tape is one of the things that's strangling business and the ability to create jobs. You two ministers, within the next week, I want something on my table that says how we're going to address it. And that's what should be happening, right? I agree. So again, it's 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 a uh, it's uh, there seems to be a trend of, for whatever reason, not being able to hold to actually direct your ministers and hold them to account and 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 you know in the absence of any other reason you i certainly fall back on that he's looking behind his shoulders to the ANC. Right. now you know lots of people tell me but he wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the ANC, which is true but given where the ANC is currently you know, I mean, this is difficult for me to say. I mean, I grew up in the ANC, in my anti-apartheid days, right? But, and, and for many years, a, the interests of the country and the interests of the ANC were congruent. They're not anymore. And we've got to face up to that. We've, it's 
hard though it may be, we've got to face up to it. And, and, and the president in the position he is in has got to say, look guys, the time has come for me to put the country first. You know, and if you guys are going to call me back, well, call me back. I don't think they will. I think Cyril is the only person who's going to draw the vote for the ANC at this point in time. So, so again, I, as I said, these are difficult political situations, but, uh, you know, we don't have too many choices. People keep saying we're at a crossroads. I keep on saying we're at a T-junction. We have one of two choices. Crossroads gives us too many choices. We've got to take the right choice and take the hard decision, then go in the right direction. And, and we're all going to have to, there's going to have to be trade-offs and compromises along the way. We're all going to have to make trade-offs and compromises. But it's got to be under the leadership of a decisive government. Speaking of uh, decisiveness, I mean, this is a very uh, important topic. Uh, the Zonda Commission has released at least two parts of its report um, with uh, damning findings against, um, you know, um, senior office, officers and office bearers within the within government and as well as in the private sector. Uh, there's a NetBank, Standard Bank, Bain and Company, and so on, uh, among other private players that um, have been um, fingered in the report. So now we're sitting with a situation where everybody is calling for action. Um, do you, as a, uh, as, 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 as a business formation, uh, have at least some semblance of hope that we're about to see some prosecutions um, coming out of the Zondo Commission's report? Well, last night the president said by the end of June, he'll put a plan on the table on how he's going to implement the recommendation. But at the same time, he has said nothing stops uh, some institutions with mandate to start seeking uh, uh, or Not sure, absolutely. No, and so we have publicly said that the, the prosecuting NPA must move with haste to investigate those that parts one and parts two of the report says should be investigated, be they in the public sector or the private sector. And if there's a prima facie case about against anybody, they must prosecute and, and, and get that be done as quickly as possible. The NPA has publicly in the past said that they also have capacity issues. We have publicly offered to assist, but we, we want to do that in a way that, and, and we're absolutely serious about this, in a way that does not impinge on her independence, in a way that to fight state capture, we don't create more state capture. Okay, so we've got to have an arm's length approach towards this. She's got to agree to accept capacity from the private sector. And then we've got to structure it in a way that we have an alternate approach. We have no influence on the use of that capacity. It's got to be her decisions. And we're talking to government about this at the moment. So, so I think she doesn't have to wait till the end of June to, to start doing what she does, okay? 
Uh, President has said that a special unit has been created for Zondo and corruption. Uh, uh, that the deputy public protector will be replaced pretty soon. That has been empty for a while. So, so I think she needs to do that. Uh, she, she's been quite clear that before she takes things to court, she wants reasonably watertight cases and so on. And I, I appreciate that. But perhaps what, you know, what we should be talking about is, you know, it would have been great if the president said last night that we are actually allocating so much to the public prosecutor. Uh, and we will find that money. Okay, by redirecting or reallocating whatever. Because I think that this is probably one of the single most important things for this country at the moment. Because this will, if, if we get people to court and we go to jail, if they get found guilty, it will raise confidence, it will raise investor confidence. So, so I think that, yes, she needs to start working on this very quickly. I think if the state can find some money uh, uh, by reallocating some parts of the budget and so they must put it into the prosecuting authority. We are certainly talking to government to see how we can help, we're willing to help. I mean, I've spoken to firms of attorneys and others who are saying we'll make people available pro bono if, if they want us. So, yeah. Two, two, two quick and interrelated questions and then I will... Um... Uh, keep quiet for, 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 for a while. Does it not concern you as Business Unity South Africa that uh, upon the expansion of the terms of reference of the Zondo Commission as early as 2020, that uh, there was um, a, an extent to which the Commission was allowed to share information with law enforcement agencies that nothing has happened, uh, at least up, up to this point? Uh, but also related to that, do you think that uh, the president and his government are, as it were, communicating a, a strong A message on, on fighting corruption as you as business would like to hear? Yeah, so, so I, I think that your first question is related to my answer that I think it is concerning that given that there was a regulatory change in, I think, in the Justice Act that enabled the Zondo Commission to share information with the prosecuting authority. It is concerning that we haven't seen any prosecutions from the Zondo thing. But again, it talks to the capacity issues and so on. Uh, there might be other reasons that I don't know about, but it is concerning. Uh, whether the president is sending a clear enough message. Look, I think the president has done fairly well on corruption. I think, I think you know, supporting Zondo when he needed extensions, doing that. Uh, I think he's been vocal on that. Where I think there's some weaknesses, in my view, uh, that he's not being decisive enough in his own party uh, with people who have been seen to be corrupt and who have been shown to be corrupt. Uh, these laborious party processes, I think, in, in where we are in the country right now, I'm not too sure they're appropriate way to go. I think they need to be more decisive. 
but but I think you know he managed to start rebuilding some of the institutions that were destroyed during the Zuma administration. He's made good appointments at SARS, as NPA, at uh, Fox, and others, and and so. Uh, I mean, I, I think I need to. Give, we need to give him credit for that. Is there much more to do? Absolutely. But yeah, let me stop. Right. And as as the private sector, uh, you you state state capture did not happen only on the government side. You had private players uh, who also uh, played a huge role. And from the business side, as 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 a formation. What, what measures would you put in place or what would you like to see to ensure that we do not have a situation like this and those that are implicated from the private sector side that are, are dealt with to discourage um, people yeah. in the future from, from, from acting in the, in the same manner? Yeah, so, so one of the things, as I said, we've done is we publicly accepted all the recommendations and we've said, investigations must happen, prosecutions must happen, right? Uh, we, we don't believe that we should be acting against either a government agency or a private sector firm because they've been mentioned in the commission. Dondo is quite clear, investigate these people. And if, if they found wanting and they charge them, then we must act against them in our own organizations. Uh, we have publicly said that we have a problem so let me just knock this on the head bain and company fires uh we felt that they they beyond the pale to be quite honest this wasn't some management consultancy that inadvertently got caught up in corruption they aided and abetted us and and we've had discussions with members and so on and as you know blss asked them to step down uh, so, so we doing that. Then, then what we're also doing is we're saying that, and we said this in our initial public statement after first part of the report, that I think that Zondo gives business the opportunity for serious introspection and to look at, as you say, what we put into place to try and avoid this in future. So, one of the firms mentioned in Zondo called me. I had a meeting with them earlier this morning. And they briefed me on, so for argument's sake, they would say they were working with a particular SOE. They went through all their processes. The SOE said, yes, we want to work with you. Subsequently, Zondo found that the SOE hadn't gone through its internal processes, procurement processes. And this firm tells me, well, we, we couldn't know that. But what they're doing is they, in future, they will ensure that if they're working with a state-owned entity, one of the things they will do is they will want in writing from the state-owned entity that they have gone through their internal processes. And those are all kosher. Uh, so that one, they, they, they're going the extra mile, they're being more rigid in in, in, in the sort of discipline they have in dealing with that. And, and secondly, if anything happened, they've actually gone through that process. But that's just an example. I think at the organized business level, Zondo gives us the opportunity to step back, introspect and say, well, what's come out of Zondo, there's been the following practices. 
what sort of guardrails do we put into place for our organizations so that we pick these things up earlier if they, if they do do it and then we act against that but what sort of guardrails do we put so that we minimize that sort of action so those sorts of things i think we need to discuss and i also said that dondo gives us as a country the opportunity to reset our moral compass and i think we need to do that in consult in con concert with other social partners and so on. So we, I mean, we're taking the report very, very seriously. And I think that if we don't actually learn from it and, and put into place mechanisms to ensure one, that we minimize this happening again, but two, that we pick things up quickly and that we act against our members quickly. If, if it's shown that they've gone outside of the guardrail that they themselves would have agreed, uh, if we don't do that, then then I think, you know, all the work that Dando does goes fall by the way, sir. And, and, and speaking of SOEs, uh, you have the Government Shareholder Management Bill, which uh, was lauded as, as an, an opportunity for government to strengthen the, the, the governance of, of state-owned entities. Um, do you think that a, a single framework for SOEs would uh, assist in their functioning and, and recovery, as it were? Well, the framework is a framework, right? The issue here is, do you act according to the framework? And if you don't act according to the framework, are you held accountable? And that's the issue. So, so you know, I, I think that you can develop the framework which says that you should have appropriate people on your board, you should have a following system in place, blah, blah, blah. And that's great. Uh, but I think that what government then needs to do, one, they need to ensure that they follow through on that framework. They need to ensure that they don't interfere politically in those organizations. They need to in fact, talk to the private sector as well, who deal with those organizations to say, look, if we do put the following into place, do you guys have the confidence to actually work with these organizations? Do you have the confidence to fund some aspects of these organizations and so on? And, and then there's got to be a very clear, transparent mechanism of accountability. But I think that, again, what you know, where we are currently, I think we also need to ensure that we have a strong and vibrant civil society that keeps their eye on these things and, and holds government to account. Uh, uh, and, and I think that's beginning to build uh, because of the Zuma years, because of Zondo and so on. I think there are organizations in the civil society that are beginning to look at these things, hold government to account. I think we need to be more cohesive in that. So, so yeah, the framework is fine, but I, I think that just given what's happened in the last 10, 15 years, uh, we need to be absolutely vigilant that the framework is, is applied and most importantly, that we hold government publicly to account when these things fall by the wayside. And, and the president uh, during the state of the nation mentioned that 
they will look at all the SOEs and look at the ones that they still want to keep and, and, and the ones that they uh, see a need, yes. a need for, for restructuring or, or, or that uh, sort of thing. But um, from 2018, he's been mentioning this issue of restructuring of SOEs. At some point, he mentioned that there will be chief restructuring officers appointed for various SOEs. That has not happened. Um, do you think that maybe it, it's, it's time to, to effectively remove the, the monopoly that's enjoyed by some SOEs, open them up to, to competition, and maybe that will um, increase their, their, their efficiency because if they know they have the state um, to, to rely on, they enjoy monopoly, they can sort of um, relax and do these things knowing that uh, government will come with a bailout simply because they are the ones enjoying um, monopoly in that particular industry or sector. Yeah. Look, I, I, I think opening it up is one way to deal with it, but I don't think that's the reason to open it up. I think we need to open it up because we need to bring about more competition in some of the areas where the SOEs are working, just to improve service delivery, just to improve the lives of people. I mean, you know, and, and, and one of the things we've been pushing hard for is that we're not saying, I mean, it's for government to decide whether they want to privatize anything. We're not necessarily saying that what we are saying is that I, I get tired of hearing, you know, state-owned entity say, well, we screwed up because we don't have capacity. Well, there's plenty of capacity in this country. Have relationship with the private sector. That pass on some of your responsibilities to the private sector. And, and they have the capacity to deliver. But, and, and depending on the type of state-owned enterprise, if they're delivering social services, have the relations with the private sector that these are the services we want you to deliver and we'll hold you to account for them. So we need more robust and more creative relationships between SOEs and the private sector, okay? But that does not mean that you don't address the weaknesses in the SOEs because you also don't want to create a situation where that SOE continues to be weak, has weak leadership, has weak capacity, and then it goes into partnership with the private sector. And essentially what happened is that the private sector runs the show. Now you don't, you don't want the situation where, and when we say involve the private sector, when we say private sector needs to lead economic growth and so on, we're not saying take everything over. These SOEs have been formed to play a particular role. They must play that role. But part of playing that role efficiently is to have partnership with the private sector and bring the private sector in. But you bring the private sector in as a strong organization, not as a weak organization. So just that point. And then, you know, we talk about the restructuring of SOEs. We should look at restructuring broadly. So I don't know, we, had six, we have 600 odd SOEs in the country. We should have a thorough process that says if SOE one is not delivering any economic services or social services, then why should it exist? Closing. Okay, if SOEs three and four are doing some other things, 
rationalize them. And if they still need it, if there's a reason for them to. Uh, and we've got to have those sorts of discussions and we've got to do that. We should be moving those 600 down to 100 or whatever, okay? And increasing efficiency, spending less money and so on and so on. And then holding them to account for sustainability. All right, so some SOEs may never make profits because of what they have to deliver, but they still need to be accountable and need to be sustainable. All right. So those sorts of discussions we need to have. I mean, if you look at ESCOM, for instance, lots of problems. But what is healthy is that certainly in our discussion with them, they're telling us, look, we shouldn't be the only player in town. So some people are saying they must spend a good few billion bucks in trying to maintain power stations that are 40 odd years old. They're telling me we'd rather spend those billions of bucks in enabling renewable energy that can get onto the grid. And they, sure, they'll be competing with us, but we're getting more energy onto the grid and we're moving towards uh, moving away gradually on our reliance on coal. Right? Those sorts, that sort of thinking that we need across the board. And, and, and we can't keep on maintaining a monopoly when one, that monopoly is not delivering services to people it needs to deliver to. Two, it's costing the state a fortune. And three, it's, it's impinging neg negatively on the rep reputation of this country. And those are the sorts of hard decisions we need um, to take. And let's move away a bit to, to what the president mentioned just uh, in, in the State of the Nation address. The move away from, or the the government working towards moving away from the national state of disaster, as a, as a way of changing direction in the management of the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, I know, as as the private sector, you you are pushing for mandatory uh, vaccination in order to to open up the economy. Uh, but but from what we've uh, experience with the government is they, they take a bit of time to, to make decisions. Um, from, from your side, uh, how soon do you think uh, government should do away with the state of national disaster and, and, and look towards other measures that uh, will create uh, more economic activities? And, and how are you playing a role as the private sector in ensuring that uh, we move uh, towards a, an environment where we live with the pandemic, but still ensuring that there is uh, opening up of the economy. Okay, so we're not pushing for mandatory vaccination simply because we want to open up the economy. I mean, the economy is by and large open. We're pushing for mandatory vaccination because all the science shows that if you are vaccinated, there's significant less chance of yours getting seriously ill and being hospitalized. There's significantly less chance of yours infecting others. And if we get that right, then it's good for the economy and it's good for just health and well-being. That's why we want, and, and, and also that employers have the responsibility to provide a safe workplace to all the employees, right? That's why we're pushing for mandatory vaccination. 
and 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 again, we're not pushing for for this for any other reason, but that the science shows that vaccination is the best weapon we have against this virus. Now we've been, you know, at the time COVID started, we put into place the Business for South Africa platform. And we've been supporting government for the last two years to, uh, on that. Uh, in the last year, last year on, on the vaccine rollout. And, and I mean, we meet with the DG of Health and his team and some people from Treasury right now once a week, but we used to meet at least twice a week when we were in the midst of this. We are quite clear that the state of disaster should be lifted. We don't think there's a need for it. But, and I think the president mentioned this last night, the, what the state of disaster enables from a regulatory and other points of view, needs to be institutionalized in either the Department of Health or an appropriate department. Uh, because we can't have a situation where we lift the state of disaster and then the fourth wave comes in winter and it's a tough wave and we don't have the instruments to do it. At least those instruments that in those are other relevant department. So I think that needs to be done. That needs to be done very quickly. Uh, but the commitment last night to lift the state of disaster, I think is the correct one. We certainly working very hard with health to see how they can institutionalize what they can institutionalize. So, so then that state of disaster should be lifted. Okay. Simply because one, we don't think there's a need for it once it's institutionalized differently. Two, it's, it's not healthy uh, for a minister in government to have that sort of a tool which you can overreach at times. Uh, and it's just not necessary. And I think all the health people are saying it's not necessary that we can deal. So, and then how the vaccine, one, it's still an imperative to get as many people vaccinated as possible. No two ways about it. And, and we're working hard with government to do that. Uh, we have the vaccines. In the initial stages, we had a supply issue. We don't have a supply issue anymore. We've got to get more arms into, uh, jabbed into arms, including with younger people, as well as older people across the board. Uh, we also, I mean, taking, following advice of the medical people and the scientists on whether we're moving from a pandemic to an endemic. Okay, and if we move to an endemic, that's great. Then we treat this like we treat other endemics. But certainly from, we have not seen the, the people in the know, people sitting on the C and so on, say that we have moved into an endemic, we haven't. But uh, the signs seem to be positive. Uh, we'll see what the fourth wave brings. But on all of this, we will take direction from the medical people and the science. Science must direct us, nothing else. And, and it's, uh, I think, uh, Mr. Kovadia, that's, that's a good way to end it off. Um, okay. To say that government must, must, must take direction. In all the things we've discussed in this podcast, it's clear that 
government has to be the firm leader in directing the direction that this country has to take. Yeah. And, and, and with that, um, I, I would like to thank you, Mr. Kovadia, for- Can I make one more point? Yes, sir. If I may. Yeah. The B4SA experience in supporting government, both in managing the, the virus in 2020 and in the vaccine rollout in 2021, demonstrates that if you focus on something, we can work together to actually make things happen. So at the height of the virus on the B4SA platform, we had close to 400 professionals from different spheres working pro bono for a year to help government manage the virus. On the vaccine rollout, we've got thrown onto 50 people that have been working pro bono for a year to support government. So I think that if we focus and if we're serious about making a difference, we can come together and do it. And, and, and through NEDLAC, we work very well with social partners on the whole COVID setup because we're all concentrated and focused on this and we needed to actually deal with this. So I think that it's a, it's an example that we can make things happen if you want. Great, great words indeed. And, and I think maybe next time we should get together and talk about NetLake, a whole 30 minutes on, on NetLake. Or even two hours. Netlake. Yes. On NetLake. Then I, then I need a whiskey. Yes. <laughs> no, indeed. We, we might take you up on that. Yeah. Um, on, on that note, uh, Mr. Covadia, thanks for, for, for sharing great Thank insights and, and a great conversations. And uh, certainly we do appreciate you taking the time. It's been a great conversation. Thank you very yeah. much. And thanks for the very probing question. You got on top of the issues. So that helps. <laughs> thank you. you. No, no, it's okay. No, uh, thank you very Cheers. much, sir. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. To keep up to date with public policy and current affairs, follow us on our social media platforms. You can find us on LinkedIn as Frontline Africa Advisory, Twitter at FAA underscore advisory, Facebook, Frontline Africa Advisory, YouTube, Frontline Conversations and our website www.frontlineafrica.co.ca You don't want